Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt, and today I'll be talking to the man the Toronto Star calls Canada's Indiana Jones, best-selling author and explorer Adam Schultz. Adam Schultz is a historian, archaeologist, geographer, and Westway Explorer-in-Residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Schultz holds a PhD from McMaster University, where his research examined the influence Indigenous oral traditions had on the fur traders in the subarctic and Pacific Northwest. The author of A History of Canada in Ten Maps, Alone Against the North, Beyond the Trees, and most recently, The Whisper on the Night Wind, all of them national bestsellers in Canada. Welcome to Northern Latitudes, Adam. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. Tagline for Whisper on the Wind is a true history of a wilderness legend. Tell us a little bit about the legend that took you into the untamed wilderness of Labrador. Yeah, I mean, this was a little bit different than any of my other expeditions or adventures I'd ever done. I was doing some research, which I often do, reading some old fur traders accounts, uh, their diaries from 100 years ago in Labrador. And uh, for the most part, the entries in the diary are pretty ordinary stuff, you know, tales about hunting caribou and trapping beaver and chopping firewood and dog sled teams and that sort of thing. Uh, but there was one entry in the diary that was like, unlike anything I'd ever encountered before, immediately made me sit up in my chair and take notice. And uh, the author of the diary, a fur trapper by the name of Merrick, he described um, finding strange tracks in the woods, unlike anything anyone had ever seen or even heard of, uh, calls in the night that would echo out of the forest, and most alarmingly of all, sled dogs that went missing uh, with no explanation. And he gave a lot more details. And the details, uh, I mean, I'd come across these kind of, uh, you know, stories, but nothing like this. I mean, this was really something else. And I'm naturally a skeptic. You know, I take these kind of stories with a big grain of salt. But by the end of reading through this thing, I felt, wow, something really did happen here. I mean, maybe it was a hoax. Maybe it was some elaborate hoax. Uh, but there was clear that something, there was a story there. And I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I ended up packing off packing up my backpack and setting off for the wilderness of Labrador to see if I could investigate this old legend and hopefully unravel it and tell the story in my book. Now, like you said, these, these legends exist. And you, you mentioned in the book, actually, you mentioned about them existing in, what do you call them? Northern forest based cultures. They're so prevalent, like across, you talk about Northern Europe and you talk about Canada and everything else. What is the, what do you think the reasons are for that? based on your background and also can you tell us about a few of the others that do exist in Canada and what you might might have thought at one point at least what this one was in Labrador yeah I mean so in my book I explore sort of um, the similarities and the parallels in folklore found all over the northern world wherever you have um, forest boreal forest or subarctic forest coniferous forest whether it's in Russia or Finland or northern Germany Sweden Norway and all across North America, from Labrador to the Yukon to Alaska, um, it seems that across all these different cultures, like the Vikings or other Germanic peoples, Russians, um, indigenous people, different indigenous cultures here in North America, you have similar legends of large cannibalistic beings that stalk the northern forest um, and that you would want to avoid if you could. 
<laughs> and I, I, I speculate in the book, you know, why are there such striking parallels between these different myths all over the Northern world and, you know, what, what inspired them? And it's possible the landscape itself, um, the ecology of that place uh, in the past is part of the reason why they had such a harsh folklore. Um, I mean, they're kind of stories you can imagine centuries ago gathered around the campfire in the woods listening to you know your grandmother tell you these kind of stories that if you stray off the beaten path or if you go out into those mountains uh, there's something out there that's going to get you it's going to eat you alive now maybe you could say there's a good evolutionary reason for telling those stories around a campfire especially to young children so they learn their lesson um, not to go into those mountains or to get off the beaten path uh, because bad things really could happen to you and i think you know conditions especially if you look at the archaeological record they really were incredibly harsh historically um you know if you had a really harsh winter that could be the difference between a successful hunt and a failure especially if the uh, prey species you're relying upon well their population might crash you know snowshoe hare every nine years or so the population crashes same with caribou and elk and other animals so this was something this was just the grim brutal reality that humans in these northern environments had faced uh for countless centuries that every once in a while uh, there might be a famine. And out of those famines, there could come very desperate choices that had to be made. And maybe that's partly why they had these legends of things like uh, Baba Yaga, witch-eating cannibals and windigos and other monsters like that in the North Woods. Maybe it reflected uh, the dim memory that had been preserved in oral tradition culturally of a famine that had happened once and some people really had turned into cannibals in order to survive. So I get into those kind of... Um, legends and history in the book but ultimately i think what happened in labrador 100 years ago where all these sightings took place was something quite different but i really wanted to try to explain or explore every aspect and really do a thorough investigation um, before coming to some sort of conclusion about what i think it was that was happening there 100 years ago yeah and it, it it's a, the book is riveting it's spine tingling it's a real thriller i mean it really is i mean i've read it twice now Wow. Um, to prepare for Well, to prepare for this, because I, I, you know, I, so I, I've loved all your books, but this one, I, it is, it's a spine tingling thriller. And you've, you, you've brought across the, the feelings of, you know, being out on your own in the woods and even, you don't have to go to uh, Northern Labrador to get that feeling. You can go to Algonquin, you can go almost anywhere and get that feeling of suddenly you're a very small part of a very big world. But the spine tingling thriller part of it for me is really exciting because it's it's Canadian history, and I I, I honestly I don't recall which book you put it in. And I, it may have been a uh, Canada and Ten Maths uh, or History of Canada and Ten Maths where you said that Canadian history is underappreciated because we teach the boring stuff. Yeah, that sounds like a History Canada and Ten Maps. I mean, I basically I wanted to dedicate that book to anyone who ever had to sit through a boring history class. Um, and I know many of my friends, uh, that's what they tell me, you know, we don't like history. History is boring. Um, there was nothing exciting about it. And I always felt that that was a real shame, um, that there was absolutely no reason for Canadian history to be taught in that way, that Canadian history could be every bit as exciting as like Game of Thrones, like this epic struggle that played out across half a continent, a, a clash between empires, um, you know, thick with dark plots and conspiracies and mutinies and murders and wars and incredible adventures and survival stories. And I really wanted to try to do justice to that in History Canon 10 Maps to write a book that would read like a, a page turner, a thriller where you want to know uh, what's going to happen to Champlain or Franklin 
or Thompson? You know, what are they going to find around the next bend or over the mountain? Are they going to survive? Um, you know, turn it into this this thrilling account, um, this epic tale that played out across a dramatic landscape spanning thousands of miles from the coast of Labrador to the Arctic to uh, the Pacific Northwest rainforest. And that's what I tried to do in the book, History Canon 10 Maps. And my new book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, is sort of similar, where I've again gone into the pages of history and I've tried to tell the story in a, in a different way than a sort of boring, dry history book. I've tried to take history and turn it into an adventure. And I'm hoping that if uh, people read the book, they get the same sense of excitement, that it's a bit of a mystery, a thriller, where you're trying to race to the end and find out what's going to happen um, in this, this historical story. I think you've accomplished that amazingly well. And I mean, if you, you know, if for a day you were in charge of teaching history in Canada, what would you do? What would one thing you would do? Like just one thing you would say, hey, let's do this. Oh, that's Just a tough Read your books. Yeah, but I'll <laughs> sign all my books to the curriculum, or at least in maps. Yeah, well, I always say, so my advice to history teachers or historians or anyone who writes history books is that the first rule of history is don't be boring, right? Life is short. It's over in the yeah. blink of an eye. We have such a short amount of time on this earth. No one has time to be bored, right? There's no excuse for it because history is full of fascinating stuff. And even if you live 10 lifetimes, you could never even come close to reading all the books in a library. So you have to focus on what's interesting, right? So the first right. rule of history, I would say, is don't be boring because nobody has time to read it all otherwise, right? And there's no reason for it because history is so full of fascinating details. So I always, I'm always super conscious of that when I'm writing my books. I'm like, I don't want to abuse my reader's patience. Um, if I'm not being exciting and interesting and engaging, they have every right to throw this book away and go do something else with their time. And it sounds incredible, but when I was in academia, I was amazed by how many of my colleagues did not share that view where they thought, well, you know, they kind of looked down their noses on the idea that you had to be interesting to write history, right? It was this very sort of um, academic view where it didn't matter how boring it was. In fact, some of them had the attitude that, you know, the more boring it is, the better it is. The better, yeah. Um, you know, if nine people read this book and it collects dust on a shelf, all the all the better right but my idea was the exact opposite of that which is i wanted to make my books as accessible as possible and to appeal to the widest possible group of people from all walks of life in fact the one thing that i find really gratifying is whenever i hear from people who tell me that they don't like history they don't like maps and they would never read a book like that but they ended up stumbling upon my book and they really enjoyed it which is what i was hoping to you know reach people who never found history that interesting but all of a sudden they're like wow this really sparked my interest it whetted my appetite now i want to read more and learn more so i get emails all the time from people who are like i loved your book can you recommend other books or i want to know you know how can i get my hand on some of these diaries or journals you reference um because it just sort of opened up this whole new avenue to them and they realized this is not the boring story i thought it was there's so much more here that i want to explore and to me, I think that's a very exciting thing when you've introduced someone to a subject and now they want to know more about it. Now, you mentioned maps. And in the front of The Whisper on the Night Wind, there's a map there. Now, is that just an illustration for the book or is that an actual existing map? Well, that's actually a map I drew uh, okay. myself for the book. Um, yeah. I figured that this book was a little bit different in style and tone than any of my others. So I wanted the map to be a little bit different in style and tone as well. Yeah instead of just having an ordinary map that we could print in the book, uh, 
I was like, well, why not do something a little more artistic? Let's make this kind of like a fantasy map that you would see in Lord of the Rings or something yeah. uh, when we actually draw on the mountains yeah. and all this stuff to give give the reader a sense that you're actually embarking on this this great adventure, right, in this mysterious land, which is Labrador. So I decided to to go in a slightly different direction and draw the map of my route. Uh, well, I assume that's what it was because there, there was no credit for the map. So I assume this is a map that's for an illustration purposes. But maps, obviously, for somebody like you who you know, go solo across the Arctic and, you know, canoes in the Hudson Bay Basin and does all these things. Maps are obviously very important to you, not just from a historical point of view, but from an actual practicality point of view. You use them all the time. So two things about maps. One is, what's the, I don't know whether to call it the history of the map in Canada, but can you tell me, like, anthropologically, I guess, from when the natives, what the natives did, we know we get a pretty good vibe for the explorers and that sort of thing. And now modern day we're satellites and GPS, which in another one of your books point out still doesn't do the trick all the time. But how did it start with like, say the native people? Yeah. So maps are actually incredibly ancient. Um, they're older than the oldest writing in the world and they're older than the oldest cities. They've been around for tens of thousands of years. In fact, maps may be the oldest example in the entire world of abstract human reasoning. Um, the ability to sort of reproduce things uh, in an image. And that comes from um, cave drawings. You know, some of the oldest cave drawings that date back many thousands of years, more than 10,000 years, are actually maps uh, etched into the walls of a cave. But that's relatively rare. I mean, we have to think that for every time someone etched a map into stone on the wall of a cave, there was probably a thousand examples where someone drew one quickly in some type of perishable material like birch right. bark or snow or dirt or sand, and then it, it washed away with the elements. But um, we know that indigenous people here in Canada were making those kind of maps for probably thousands of years, because when Europeans came over, um, they frequently asked their indigenous guides to make maps for them. And they, they did so um, very easily. I mean, they, it wasn't like some foreign concept to them. Uh, there are many examples of that in the Hudson's Bay Company and the fur trade or Champlain. Franklin asking an indigenous guide, can you draw me a map? And they would either on birch bark or right with a stick in the sand, or sometimes they simply gave them their pen or their quill and a piece of paper. And they made like a masterful map of the surrounding area, or they mapped out the coastline. The Inuit in particular, um, historically had a reputation as being really excellent map makers who were like among the best at uh, recalling entirely from memory a very detailed outline of uh, the lakes and the rivers and the coastline. And back in the 1800s, uh, many whalers who actually went up to the Canadian Arctic to hunt whales asked uh, some of the Inuit people they would meet with to map out the coast for them, which they knew quite well from traveling in kayaks and by dog sled teams and that sort of thing. And there, there are some examples. I mean, most of these maps, as you can guess, just like most historical records have not survived the ravages of time, but there are some precious examples that have been preserved in archives um, in Ottawa and Winnipeg and elsewhere from the 1800s where we can look at some of these maps. Um, and a lot of them show really impressive attention to detail. So, you know, maps have been used for thousands of years, but many of them um, obviously have not survived the ravages of time, especially in Canada, uh, where we don't, for the most part, have the, the climate and the conditions to preserve those kind of materials. Some of the oldest maps that have survived are in totally different climates like Egypt, uh, where you don't get a lot of precipitation. It's very hot and sandy. So they've actually been able to find 
uh, ancient Egyptian maps, like papyrus maps that are three or four thousand years old, uh, buried in the sand that come to life, come to light on archaeology digs and that sort of thing. Here in Canada, that would be a lot harder to find something like that. But I don't think there's any real doubt that they did exist at some point in the past. And nowadays, you know, to get, you know, we have GPS and we have satellites and we have our laps and everything. So we're all wandering around. You're obviously not able to use that most of the time because you're in a place with no satellites or, well, sorry, no GP, uh, no cell service. And um, so maps are still really important to you. How important do you think they are to, or should they be, I guess, to say, to even your general person, your person going out, you know, in Algonquin Park, for example, how important is it to know how to use a map? Well, I think, well, I think there's no doubt whatsoever that maps are still hugely important in the 21st century and that almost everyone directly or indirectly is dependent upon maps. We just don't really think about it because a lot of it is computer mapping now. Um, so it's done automatically by GPS and stuff. But I mean, if you think of, if you've ever been on an airplane or if you've ever ordered anything that came from an airplane, just think of all the flights, the thousands of airplanes that are flying around in the world and what keeps them on track to, uh, from colliding with each other. I mean, it's incredible how many flights come in and out of major yeah. cities like New York and Toronto and Los Angeles. All of that has to be very precisely mapped using computers and things um, to keep that functioning. So that's an example that affects virtually everyone. If you have anything in your house that came from overseas uh, and how mapping is still essential to that process. And of course, anyone who's ever got behind the wheel and driven somewhere and they needed a Google map or a GPS or something to give them directions, that's another example of continuing to use maps on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you're going back into the backcountry of Algonquin Park or any other wild place, um, a map is definitely a good skill to have. And it's something that on a different level is also enjoyable. I think there's a added element of fun that comes with doing things with a, a paper map and a compass rather than just relying on an electronic GPS map uh, to do everything for you. And I feel like there are still some real advantages over a printed topographic map or a printed map over a GPS. One of them is the sense of scale. Uh, for the most part, the GPS is small. It's a very small screen. It basically fits into the palm of your hand. So it doesn't necessarily give you a very good sense of the general area that you might be traveling in, in a canoe or, uh, or hiking through. Like you have to kind of zoom out and fiddle with this little tiny screen, but then when you zoom out, you lose all the detail. And when you zoom in, you get detail, but it's only in a very tiny area. So that's where the beauty of the, the old traditional map comes into play because you can spread out this much larger map that'll take up like your kitchen table, but you can easily pack and bring with you in the canoe and spread out around your campsite at night. And that will give you a new appreciation for the area in your vicinity, like a radius of 20 miles or 50 miles, however the, big the map is. And uh, it really helps you to visualize things and plan things, even on a not just a romantic, but a practical level. Um, it gives you a bird's eye perspective where you can say, okay, look at this lake. This is interesting. I think we could, you know, ca canoe up this bay to the north here. And if we do a portage, we can get into some of these interior lakes and maybe the fishing is going to be really good in there because it looks off the beaten track. Nobody goes back there or look, there's a shortcut here. We can portage to this lake and then this lake and we can get over there. Um, so it gives you a really good perspective on all these different kinds of things that you can't get as easily. Uh, necessarily from the GPS screen in the palm of your hand. It's it's interesting because there's been so much technology come into this in the last 10, 15 years, whether it's gear or whether it's 
like you said, GPS or, you know, everything like the, the materials we're wearing, everything has changed so much, even just in the last decade. Reading your books, you know, that originally you, you know, you were kind of just pulling together whatever you could to make these trips, you know, whether it was a used tent or a used sleeping bag, it didn't matter. You just wanted to get out there. Now it's changed a little bit for you over the years, but A, what do you think the biggest technological change has been for you out there? And what is one thing that's old and you still traditionally, it's your go-to because you trust it and you like it? Okay, so we're talking about me personally, like the biggest yeah, technological yeah, change I want. in society. Okay, yeah. So when I first started doing expeditions in the wilderness, I had a shoestring budget, so all of the best gear was completely beyond uh, my financial means, and I just had to make do with whatever I could lay my hands on, which was usually stuff I got used or yeah from someone else. They gave it to me for free for for many years, for over ten years. My go-to jacket on expeditions was something I literally got for free from my uncle who got it in a charity golf tournament. It was like one of those freebie door prizes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just this really cheap jacket and I wore it for like over 10 years on expeditions all over the place. And then I was just getting stuff from, you know, your your most basic store, like Canadian Tire, I would go there and, and buy whatever I could afford. I used a Canadian Tire tent, which cost me like $20. I remember buying it in high school and it was like that's how expensive it was and i used it for years until the whole thing got shredded and collapsed on me um in my canoe too i mean i built canoes with my father so i had cedar strip canoes and birch bark canoes but those weren't really suitable for a lot of the expeditions i did so i just had to find whatever i could on kijiji or secondhand and and just scrap scrape together whatever money i had that's changed quite a bit now i'm professional adventurer exploring residents i've got sponsors and all yeah you know, pretty much the best gear I could ask for. Um, so in terms of my own personal technology that I use on expeditions, uh, there's a like the clothing is pretty big. It would be a toss up between the yeah. clothing or my canoe, you know, having, yeah, I would have went with the clothing, but I understand the canoe as well. <laughs> yeah. The so the clothing is maybe the biggest change, yeah. um, under armor in, a, in particular, or, I mean, under armor is a brand, but any kind yeah. of police layer yeah. that's made out of Merino yeah. wool, uh, that's a really amazing technological innovation and uh, the other modern gear like Gore-Tex and neoprene. It's almost like, I feel like my expeditions are too easy now. Like the odds, actually, yeah, the odds of getting hypothermia are so low with modern gear because you can pretty much canoe through any conditions like wet, yeah. freezing rain. It's not going to affect you like the way it would have before all this modern gear came out. Um, and yeah, if you have like the best gloves and the best jacket and all that kind of stuff, it's, makes it a lot easier to tolerate miserable conditions. And when you're canoeing in the far north, like I canoed out to the Beaufort Sea one time, almost every day is, is you know, wind chill below freezing and wet and cold. Um, so the right gear is, is really a game changer in that regard. Although sometimes I often think that um, looking back, I had almost more fun uh, back before I had all this gear because I sort of gloried in it a little bit and you just sort of adjust and, and get used to it. But that said, I'm not really going to be giving up, you know, my modern equipment anytime soon. In terms of my traditional stuff that I really like, um, there's a few. Some of them are are more like sentimental attachment to them, um, but others, like this, isn't super traditional. If you're looking like something that existed hundreds of years ago, but it has been around for a long time, which is a Swiss Army knife. Um, I'm still very much a fan of my Swiss Army knife. It, it's simple. 
um, but so useful. And I know there's so many different knives on the market, but I'm still very much like I've been using a Swiss Army knife since I was, I remember my first one I ever got, I was only two years old. My grandparents gave it to me for my wow. birthday. I don't think I was allowed to play with it as no. a two-year-old, um, but I still have that knife that I got as a two-year-old. And so, I've been, I, you know, I've gone into the store and looked at all the different designs, but I always, when it comes to a Swiss Army knife, I'm like, I prefer the classic, the original design. It has this amazingly useful saw uh, that I've used for everything under the sun. And, you know, the knife is pretty much what I need for, for what I use on a day-to-day -day basis. So the Swiss Army knife is one tool uh, that I've used continuously throughout my whole life. And I can't really see that ever changing um ever being an improvement on that that little simple pocket knife that you just you know slip right into your pocket there and it, and it has everything you need right on it um then there's a bunch of other things that haven't really changed i'm still very fond of my wood paddle i know that there are yes. modern uh composite like uh yeah. carbon fiber paddles that are technically of course better but uh, it's the sentimental side of me that's like, no, nah, I, I really like the feel of the wood paddle in my hand. Um, so I'm a little bit more traditional like that. The other thing that has become much more common in recent years is that people who canoe solo are increasingly not even using a canoe paddle. They now use the double bladed kayak paddle when canoeing solo. Um, when I was last in Agamba Park, I didn't see a single solo canoeist who had a traditional canoe paddle. Literally every single person had the double bladed paddle and they thought I was some weirdo for having a traditional paddle. But, you know, technically, if you if you look at it from an athletic point of view, if you're using a double bladed paddle, you're not canoeing, you're actually kayaking, at least under the Olympic definition. That's how the Olympics distinguishes between the two sports. A double blade is, is by definition kayaking because of the motion where the single blade is canoeing. So I'm still traditional in that sense that I use the, the single blade, even though like I don't dispute that from a technical perspective, the double blade allows you to go faster. I mean, I think that's pretty much established fact, but yeah, I'm a traditionalist, I guess, a little bit at heart in that regard that I still like my old wooden paddle. And I have, I have used the other paddles. Um, you know, I, I used a bent shaft one partly on my journey alone across the Arctic. So I don't, I don't entirely discount them, but I, would still feel a bit, bit weird if I didn't have at least one wood paddle with me on a trip. Yeah, you were just mentioning traditionally and going back and you mentioned about um, making canoes with your dad. And in your books, you tell us that you grew up in the woods or surrounded by the woods and that you spent a lot of time exploring those woods. I have a friend that would call that living feral now with a child. And it's changed so much for kids these days. Well, not even just kids, even young adults. It's changed so much as having access to that kind of early start in life. And I'm wondering how much of you, you attribute to that early start, which I would say probably quite a bit, but then also how do you think that's changing us as humans that we don't have access like that a lot anymore? Yeah, these are all, uh, these are big questions that are probably well worth taking a lot of time to think about and, and grapple with. I guess I consider myself extre uh, extremely lucky that I got to grow up with the forest all around me. I mean, we didn't have any neighbors. Literally on all four sides of my house was forest. And I consider that the greatest blessing in the world, that I could just roam to my heart's content in the woods all around me and, and uh, not, not only learn about them from a practical point of view, how to identify the different trees and plants and track animals and all that kind of stuff, but the sort of creative effect it had on me, I think was really big. The woods uh, fired my imagination and 
inspired me creatively. So I think it's still where all of my books come from. It's uh, the creative impulse comes from the woods. And if I ever didn't know what to write, I would just go for a walk in the woods and the words would just sort of flow. And so that's my personal background with the forest. But I do think about that all the time. Actually, it's something I've I've thought long and hard about and did a little bit of writing and speaking about, which is why I think it, it is so important that everyone um, at least have the opportunity to have a forest somewhere nearby. And it's amazing how much green space we've lost in Canada in the last 20 years around our major urban areas and cities. I mean, cities like Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal just seem to keep growing and growing and growing. Um, and they're becoming ever more dense. And I know people who live in Toronto and I could never live in a city myself, but I always ask them about it. And I realized that uh, I think a lot of people have realized over the course of this pandemic, the last two years of restrictions, um, just how much they cherish and value uh, their parks and having access to nature and how important that is, but how it's getting more and more difficult to access some of these places because the cities are getting denser. And I never really thought about this, but the people I know who live in the city will say, well, you know, there used to be a park I'd go to anymore, but it doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's been developed or this sort of thing. So I think as a whole, as a country, uh, we have to do a better job making sure that we have forests on our doorsteps. I mean, I think my ideal goal would be that every person has a forest within walking distance, because I think there's something special about not having to get in a car and drive four hours or something to get out in the woods or, uh, you know, make a big trip. I think it, it's, it's really essential that people are able to essentially walk to a local forest. Like the way we have city parks or a local park, I think we should almost have like a local forest uh, for everyone who, who can access this natural place uh, to recharge their batteries. And I mean, if you look at uh, where we're projected to be heading in the decades ahead, uh, I think that that's going to be even more essential. And I think, you know, it can affect us in all kinds of ways that we don't even really know yet, mentally and physically, um, spending almost all our time indoors now, increasingly on screens and uh, digital technology. I mean, it's not really how humans evolved to live. I mean, our ancestors for like 99.5% of our history lived their lives in the outdoors, in the open air, wide open spaces, um, roaming around in nature. So and I, mean, I think it's something we need to explore more in depth and look at what is the effect psychologically on having humans now live most of their lives in front of screens indoors because it's just so unnatural and we really don't have to go back that far in terms of time or generations before that would have been very bizarre uh, for the vast majority of all people. I mean, here in Canada, you only have to go back to about the 1930s or so when the majority of people in the country were actually farmers. Uh, that was literally the most common occupation. So in other words, it's not that far ago when every, almost everyone in Canada had a job where they worked outside. Um, and that has changed rapidly in a very um, profound way and in, in just a short amount of time. And it's there's every indication that, that that trend is going to continue and really accelerate in the years ahead, as we've seen with COVID last two years, so much switching to online. And I think, well, it's clear indication that we need to give more opportunities for people to at least get outside a little bit and to experience nature, to get into it, uh, if only to unwind, right, to uh, slow things down uh, for their own health. So, yeah, that's something I do think about quite a bit. Well, it was interesting because it was um, a news story I went through the news cycle the other day, but it was actually appeared a few years ago. I remember the time New York Times doing a story on it. 
that Canadian doctors were now able to prescribe um, passes to the national parks in some provinces. And you asked a question in your book um, in the afterward, you said, what happens when there's no more deep, dark woods? And that's, yeah, like that's, that's part of it, you know, and we're, you, I'm sure have seen so much change, you know, the, the changes that have happened to the planet and the things that are happening in Canada, because the North suffers from it a great deal, uh, more so than a lot of places, you know, not to be a pessimist or to come down to the optimist, pessimist side, but how do you feel about what's going on? And do you think we can pull out of it? Well, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think, you know, the, the problems that we face and the challenges we face are enormous, but we have the capacity to solve all of them. It's uh, in many cases, not really a question of, uh, you know, figuring out the answer. We already know the solutions. It's just a matter of political will. So that's partly what makes me an optimist is that we know mostly how to solve a lot of these problems. We just have to get the leadership um, there to do it. And I think uh, eventually we will. Um, which is in some small way what I hope to accomplish in my books. You know, I, I said I hope my books are entertaining, but if there's something I hope people take away from them, it's that they'll care a little bit more about the fate of wild places and recognize the value in them um, and want to, to protect them. And I think that is definitely should be a higher priority for us. But I'm optimistic that it's something that we can accomplish. And I think there's some good indicators uh, that things are going in that direction. I mean, one thing that's come out of the last two years or so is that people like green space, they like the outdoors, and they realize like this is a real national asset. Um, we need to look at it as such and do more to protect it and preserve it. And even in some cases where we lost it, bring it back, uh, rewild it. And I think that this is something I try to get into my book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, which is the feeling of... Um, solitude and in real wilderness so this is something quite different than what i'm talking about a city park or something like this but these yeah. truly vast places where as far as the eye can see there's not a single human-made object you're looking at pure wilderness and you could wander for hundreds of miles and never come across a single road or town that to me is something on a different level that's very majestic and special and we, we really should think long and hard as a country about how do we protect these truly vast wild places um, because there's something uh, incredibly special about them and they're increasingly rare in our world there are, you know almost every other country has lost those truly vast wild places um, because they just don't have the space for them and even places like brazil russia and australia uh, they're being hacked up and parceled off at a very fast rate so canada is very lucky um, that we still have these places but we shouldn't take it for granted. We should think long-term, um, you know, what has happened in other countries eventually will happen here too, unless we decide it's not enough just to protect little, you know, postage stamps, parks here and there. We need to protect a huge vast area. So we get that feeling of real wildness. And that is a change. Um, you know, we're talking about some of the changes we've seen, but that that's a big change that um, I think is important because it is a it's something of a catch-22 i mean it's a real question that's worth investigating but if you talk to people who are older than me but they can remember say Algonquin park 50 years ago or or banff national park 50 years ago they say those are places i used to go to escape crowds but now um, they're incredibly crowded like there are literally millions of people who visit these places every year like a Gonquin Park in the fall they say it's almost like a zoo because there's just so many people going there to see the fall colors or banff 
um, seems to me like a rock concert because there's yeah. tens of thousands of people everywhere. And obviously there are older people who can remember, like, it wasn't like that before. It had a much more authentic, wild feel to it, um, where you could walk on a hiking trail for hours and not come across another person where now you can't walk more than five minutes before like, okay, I got to step out of the way to let this group pass me. And that is sort of the inevitable product of just having more people go to these places, but not increasing the size of them. So that's why I think it's so important that we, we preserve more green space. Um, so people have a range of options. That's why I kind of say everyone should have a, a forest within walking distance of their home. Whereas if you live in a city and it's like, there's only one conservation area there, then everyone in that conservation, everyone in that city is going to go to that one conservation area because they don't have any other options. And if we were talking about a hospital, we'd be like, okay, this is, this is a problem. There's overcrowding. There's a shortage of beds. We need to build more hospitals. And I think we need to start thinking about that with conservation areas, which is like this one city can't just have one conservation area that quickly becomes crowded and full of litter because there's too many people going there. It should have 10 conservation areas all over the place to sort of spread people out and let them enjoy sort of the quietness and solitude of, of being out there in nature. So that, that would be like my big um, policy recommendation is that, you know, you have to have they're probably working out mathematically, you know, how much green space do you need per people and start implementing that as a, as a policy um, when it comes to city planning and that sort of thing. Cause I think we, we clearly need more in uh, many of our cities uh, where, where that is a problem uh, where, you know, on a map you can see, well, they've got this, this green belt or this conservation area. But then when you actually go there, it's like, it's, it's much too small for the population that lives here because the parking lot is overflowing um, you know, the, the, it's just, there's way too many people here. The trails have been turned into pure mud because of all the heavy traffic. Uh, it's just this, this 700 acres, it might be, you know, the 700 acre park is inadequate for a quarter of a million people instead of 700 acres, they need 7,000 or the, whatever the number is. I'm just making up hypothetical numbers. Uh, but you get the idea, I think. Yeah. And it's certainly, it's, um, the Adirondacks have basically been overrun the last couple of years with you know, with everybody wanting to get outside because of COVID and then hiking became the cool thing too, right? Like it came from being kind of a, you know, a little outside of the norm thing to being very, very trendy and very let's get out there sort of thing. And they've actually started to limit the number of people on the trails. You have to get permits and stuff. So that's one approach too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept now, especially as more and more people have decided that, Hey, this is important. And now you've got medical people saying it's important. It's like, we need the outdoors. We need this. So it'll be, it will be interesting to see. And, you know, if we can actually manage to increase that green space. Are you working on another book? It's what everybody wants to know. So I have to ask the question. Well, I'm not working on one right this second. I haven't started writing anything. Um, I'm still in the process of hopefully promoting my current book, The Whisper yeah. of the Night Wind, which has only been out for a few months. And um, hopefully it can sell enough copies that I'll be able to write another book. Write another one, yeah. That's the first step in that equation. Um, what about a new trip, the next trip? What's the next adventure? Do you have to, are you putting thought into one? Because I know you're always thinking about one, but is there one that's coming up that you think, oh, this is going to be cool? Well, yes. Um, I have many expeditions in the works. Uh, some more involving lost explorers in the Arctic. Uh, part of an ongoing project I've had of need to go back and do more expeditions focused on that. And I have some expeditions based around migratory birds and endangered species uh some things like that but 
I mean, I have a list of several dozen expeditions that I want to do some point over the next five years or so. Uh, but it often seems to be the case that the most exciting adventures are the ones I didn't plan and they just sort of happen spontaneously. Yeah. Yeah. The whisper on the night wind was sort of like that. It just happened really fast. It wasn't really, I was doing other expeditions that year in the Hudson Bay lowlands and elsewhere. And then this thing just sort of happened spontaneously. I stumbled upon it. So it's hard for me to predict and say, what am I going to be doing come yeah. summer of 2022? Because I, I kind of have a plan on paper, but I know from past experience that, there's a good chance that it will totally change and I'll end up doing something I didn't fully anticipate, which I think is kind of the fun of it all. It's kind um, of just sort of go wherever the wind takes you or whatever happens, you react to it. And uh, it's part of the fun of an adventure. All right. The latest book is called The Whisper on the Night Wind. I want to thank Adam for joining us. It's our very first podcast, and we were very lucky to get him. It's been great talking to you, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.